Hello and welcome to the FSF and Tapestry podcast. We're joined today by Kirsty Page, founder of Launchpad for Literacy. Kirsty qualified as a speech and language therapist in 1996 after working in mainstream paediatrics, specialising in working with parents and carers. And in the early years, Kirsty retrained as a teacher in 2004. She taught within Key Stage 1 and the EYFS before shifting her focus to the training and support of other practitioners while continuing to work hands-on within schools and settings. Launchpad for Literacy evolved from real-life issues and concerns in response to the needs of practitioners and children. Kirsty joins us today to discuss children's language development and how educators can support it. So thank you for joining us, Kirsty. It's lovely to see you. And um, we're going to be talking about um, children's language development. And so our first question is, what is the difference between delayed speech and language and disordered speech and language? I think to answer those questions, it, it, it needs an understanding of language development. Um, because when you're thinking about delayed de- language development, um, what you're seeing in a child is you're seeing language skills developing in the pattern and in the order that you would normally see in, in usual language development. But the notion of delay is that the child's stage of development in that process um, doesn't match their age, as in what would be expected um, by that age. So the, the, the issue of stage versus age is, is really crucial when understanding delay, um, but that the process of development in delay is following the same pattern as it would um, in normal language development. Um, and, And it's really important when considering delay that speech and language is a huge area of development. So you could... um, work with a child um, where they have a delay in absolutely every area of speech and language so their overall speech and language skills were at a much earlier stage of language development in all areas than you would expect for their age Um, but for some children um, you will find that the delay is quite specific so it might be that you work with a child who's listening whose auditory skills are where they should be or around where they should be for their age so are their comprehension their receptive language skills but the delay becomes apparent when it comes to expressive language so that we find that their ability to link words together their ability to use grammatical structures might be developing as expected but here we get a a drop in development and 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 where um, other skills were age appropriate we begin to see that their expressive language skills are more on a par with those that we would expect um, for a young a child so it's really important considering patterns of development but also within that realizing that speech and language is not one thing it is broken down into kind of sub areas of development and very lots of different skill strands within that and I think it's also uh, really important to look at a child's holistic development. Um, so if you've got a child with an overall speech and language delay, so they're at a much earlier stage of development with all aspects of speech and language than you would expect for their age, what are their other skills like? What are their motor skills like? gross motor, fine motor. Let's have a think about their visual skills because certainly early on visual skills can give us a really interesting window into non-verbal skills and and what an educational psychologist would call non-verbal intelligence. Um, And 
are we seeing delays in those other areas of development too or are actually those other skills much stronger so that the delay seems to be housed more specifically within the area of speech and language so within all this we must really understand um, the complexity and, and, and the incremental processes involved in speech and language delay um, but we also must not be so consumed by speech and language that we forget to look at the child's holistic um, development as well. So, so that's really the process of, of, of delay. And, and, and for many children um, that people work with, the, the delay will be just with their speech. So if we think about language, language processes involve the understanding of the spoken word, mm-hmm. the ability to store and link vocabulary together. So that kind of vocabulary and semantic skill. And then we've got expressive language, which is the ability to find words to join words together and to use grammatical structures speech is more to do with how I say what I say the sounds that I use um, the sounds that I might swap the sounds that I might miss off if I'm kind of younger um, and when we come to speech delay um, most children will present with what's called phonological delay where their speech sounds are developing as expected um, but the amount of speech sounds or the pattern of speech sound changes that you're hearing is very similar to what you would hear in a younger child even though the child is a little bit older Um, so so that's a, a really really common one and Often, um, when a child has speech and language needs, if there are speech issues there, speech sound changes, speech sound emissions, it's really um, very common for practitioners to latch on to the fact that they've got sounds missing or they're swapping sounds or sometimes that they can be difficult to understand. Um, and, and, And that's fine. But it's also really important that despite those speech issues that people look at other areas of development, that holistic development, but they also consider language and auditory skills. What part does that play in the child's developmental pattern? Moving on to disorder, um, I suppose the notion of disorder is we're seeing unusual patterns of development. So in order to spot disorder, you need to know um, the different areas of speech and language, but you also need to know the usual pattern uh, of development. So if we kind of look at speech sounds, which is where we left off when we last considered delay, um, if you know kind of what sounds come first and what sounds you would expect next, then there is a general flow to the consonants and patterns of sound that I will add to my speech sound repertoire as I'm developing as a child. Um, But there will be some children whose pattern doesn't follow that. So although it's um, really usual for children to swap sounds like k and g uh, with t and d, so can you fatten my coat instead of can you fasten my coat? Um, other children might um, swap those t and d sounds with the back sounds with the k and g. So it would be one, ku, ki, ko, kai um, when we're counting. Um, that is an unusual, to swap a t into a k is topsy-turvy um, to normal speech sound development. And it is that identification of unusual patterns um, that you wouldn't normally see and unusual substitutions uh, that would make you kind of think hang on we've got a little bit of disordered development within there Um, and so that's really important Um, and the most kind of 
interesting one not in not that speech sound disorder isn't interesting i don't mean that but the most important one in terms of the that's difficult to pick out is becoming aware of what we call developmental language disorder Um, and that is where children show unusual um, language patterns and unusual um kind of developmental profiles so people often will call them spiky developmental profiles or patchy developmental profiles um, so you might have a child who has learned the mechanics of listening and responding so can tell you lots about certain topics and certain things um, but when you look at their social communication their ability to take turns in play but also take turns in interactions their ability to understand that what they say and 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 the two-way communication process the impact of that on another person their ability to initiate interactions or to ask for help despite this kind of superficial surface of strong talk we can see that that child really struggles with those very basic social communication skills which you would normally see developing side by side Um, and it might be that the child has really strong vocabulary um, but actually when we um, kind of ask them to be a little bit flexible with their vocabulary so if we were to be I don't know playing with um, the toy farm and I have um, a horse and I happen to say, oh, look what my animal is doing. That child might look at me and say, it's a horse. And of course it is a horse, but a horse is also an animal. But despite that strong vocabulary, and this is just one example of of, of the pattern that I might see, um, despite that strong vocabulary, that child has a difficulty accepting that I've used that topic name of animal to to label um, a a horse Um, and and so what we see is that actually the child's superficial vocabulary appears strong but those links and that flexibility that we should be seeing in in vocabulary and semantic development there's like patches and gaps there um, missing and I think it's really crucial that we um, identify developmental language disorder um, In the early years, um, if the developmental language disorder is quite high level, it can often um, not create massive educational barriers. Um, The child might be really good because often developmental language disorder sits alongside stronger visual development. So the child might be really good with shapes and colours and and, and, and numbers and ordering numbers and then learning uh, to recognise graphemes. and high frequency words because of their strong visual skills but what we find with many children with developmental language disorder in the early years is there are kind of gaps there with personal social and emotional there are gaps there with play and 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 how they access the learning environment but from a learning point of view where things really often become problematic for children with that profile is in key stage one Um, where it might be that the child begins to hit a reading comprehension issue or struggle to have ideas to write. In the early years, we saw 
not much imaginary play, not much creativity. You know, the child didn't gravitate to the home corner. They didn't gravitate to the creative areas. Um, and so we saw a limited play repertoire, um, but we didn't really measure that or think too much about it. But in Key Stage 1, we see that same lack of imagination and lack of creativity, but we see it in their writing or we find that children have become labeled as having reading comprehension problems because they struggle with inference they struggle with prediction and they struggle with seeing things from a character's point of view and all of that kind of harks back to that developmental language disorder that of course they have issues with reading comprehension but if we'd have looked at those skills more closely through the spoken format in the early years we would have seen that those issues were always there even when we talked about things they just manifest themselves and are measured now against reading comprehension so one of my moral missions in life is to kind of understand language development but also spot these children with kind of spiky and patchy profiles much earlier work on those skills and try and avoid this kind of mislabeling of children as, as having reading comprehension issues in key stage one when really they've got language needs and they always have had language needs but we just don't measure that and, and, and specifically address that often within the early years and, and, and when we're thinking about developmental language disorder obviously some children have got much more significant issues um, issues with um, tuning into faces tuning into voices actually responding to people um, seeking people out to interact so, so, so um, depending on the child's profile developmental language disorder can affect children kind of much further down in terms of um, the order of speech and language development and I think it's really important to understand that children who go on to be given a label of having autistic spectrum disorder all of those children will have disordered language development um, but they will also have other characteristics and traits which will be enough to push them over that edge, that continuum of development to say, hang on a minute, there's enough to warrant a diagnosis here. So, so understanding language and understanding language disorder can also um, really support us for those children with much more significant and, and labelled um, issues such as autistic spectrum disorder. I think you've probably touched on aspects of this Kirsty, uh, but our second question is why is it important for practitioners to have an understanding of language and communication development? It's fundamentally important and I think yes I agree Stephen we have already touched on that particularly in relation to spotting children who have got needs and spotting those children who have got hidden needs as, as early as possible. I think that's really really important and I think within that kind of context of identifying needs, it's, it's really important that I don't mislabel or misidentify uh, what children's needs are. So it might be that I have a child in my nursery um, class who is really, really disruptive. You know, they go into um, different areas and they just empty everything out and, uh, and, and then move on to another area and do the same. Um, they really struggle to kind of sit and, and, and listen um, and it's really important that I don't fall into that trap of just seeing that child as a problem as seeing that child as disruptive because I've got to ask myself the question well 
why is that and for most children it's about you know we've got a really busy environment there's so much to choose there's so much I could possibly do the child can't filter out distractions and cope with that level of choice Um, and, and so we just kind of move from one thing to another I have to ask myself the question does this child actually know how to play does this child know how to draw does this child know how to pretend um do they just do that because when they go into the area they haven't realized um, what it is that I'm expecting them to do in that area because they don't have the skills to play in that way so I think uh, and is it that when I'm talking to them about what we're going to do or what the possibilities are they're not understanding fully those instructions and those explanations uh, and those language models so I do think understanding um, language development can help me spot delay and disorder it can help me think about if I know what develops and what should develop when it can help me kind of say is this just a a little bit of a mismatch between stage and age a little bit of immaturity or have we got a significant mismatch between stage and age so actually this child's got much more significant concerns of course it will do that but I think it's also about me having um that ability to have a well why might that be attitude uh, towards a child or if I've got a child who I don't know snatches and grabs from other children then um, you know one of the first things that I would be doing would be to look at their understanding and to look at their pragmatics their social communication skills you know are they snatching because they don't know how to take turns they don't understand that process even on a basic level um, do they know how to ask and to initiate conversation with that other child um, are they kind of even aware of that other child and that child's needs or are they still living in that kind of um, egocentric bubble where they're not aware of the impacts of, of, of our their own actions and their own um, behaviors on another child's not just their play but on their feelings as well so I think it's it's really important that we understand this process so that a child who could be kind of initially labeled as having disruptive or or poor behavior um, that I look for the what and the why um, and, and understand how language and social communication can play that role so that as well as managing those incidences of snatching and grabbing or whatever they may be um i don't just see it as a behavior management issue i just say right okay what we've got to do is in a we've got to really backtrack and we've really got to do some very early turn-taking work um or what i've got to do is i've got to be alongside the child and i've got to coach them i've got to model them about how would i ask um that child if i could have a turn um and and so a lot of that is about um people's understanding of, of, of what the child's issues are, what the child needs to do, but then being able to also embed that into um, those interactions and that play. And, and so that to sit alongside a child in an area and, and to model um, asking the other child for a turn um, is fundamental to their language development, but it's also fundamental to their PSED development. And it's also fundamental just to the day-to-day functioning of my environment and 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 then the idea is if I can put those things in place ideally I I will in the future be able to walk away 
We've just to interject there. We've been talking quite a bit about play development over recent months, and as much as we talk about our language development and our social development, how important it is for us to have realistic expectations around play development because role play for a child with significant needs doesn't necessarily look the same as it does for a typically developing three four or five year old and we need to adjust our expectations and think about what we need to do to help that child to progress with their play skills alongside all the other areas of development yeah completely i mean on my little list of kind of points of things to say i've kind of said you know not only about spotting issues um but, but that language underpins um, literacy development, it underpins mathematical understanding, my ability to understand vocabulary and cause and effects in science, my ability to formulate ideas and develop hypotheses as I get a little bit older. That's all about kind of language and, and, and those kind of semantic and idea generation skills. Of course, that kind of fundamental role of language in future learning it is really the bedrock of teaching and learning really but one of the things that I've also put in is play to understand how language development and play overlaps and I suppose in that example of behavior I talked about how um, language and particularly pragmatics um, can, can affect that ability to begin to play alongside and collaboratively with other children so we kind of expect I think in the early years that children will play in that solitary manner and then they'll play alongside and then they'll begin to play kind of collaboratively and when children don't make that progression I think we need to have more understanding of why that might be what are the skills that that child is struggling to move on with that isn't kind of happening naturally and how can I kind of facilitate those skills to develop in a more purposeful and and, and kind of um, structured and specific way that I haven't had to maybe do with the other children that have kind of developed those skills much more naturally but I always think you know when I used to be a speech and language therapist I used to work in something called the preschool service in Sunderland um, and I used to kind of get in my little car and drive around the nursery schools and the nursery classes and I used to absolutely love it I suppose it was in that role where my love of education and early years kind of really kind of began because what I was able to do is I was able to see children within their learning environments and alongside their peers and all too often you know the children on my list of of, of, of children to see children to kind of screen and work out kind of who's got significant needs who's probably going to be okay all of that malarkey Um, I used to kind of just love watching them because actually um, I could see as much about their language skills by watching them play as I could actually taking to them once to one side and having little chats and, and, and interactions with them. And I think all too often when we have children with language disorder or, or, or certainly language delay, if it affects receptive language, is we can often see patterns. We can see children who present with quite a limited play repertoire. Um, so they kind of um, stick with the exploratory play or the things that they feel safe with so every day they go to the trains or every day I find them in the sand or the water and if I start discussing with the early years practitioners um, where do they um, where do they go what do they do 
it really becomes apparent where do they not go and what do they not do. And often we can find that that language skill, which underpins understanding and talk, that listening and responding process, will also underpin those um, internal language processes that we need for certain types of play, particularly um, symbolic play, so pretend play, role play, um, and also um, creative play, that ability to generate ideas and to, to manifest that either in um, you know um, what I do so it might be that I'm making a cup of tea or it might be that I'm making dinner in the home corner or it might be that I've generated an idea and I manifest that in something I create by gluing and sticking um, and, and I think in the early years it, it's fabulous that we talk about children's interests and that we follow children's interests but I think when it comes to speech and language I think we need to be a have a little bit pinch of salt with that as in you know if I go to the trains every day and then when I go outside every day I go to the red bike and, and you don't really see me accessing other things of course I can bring learning to you I can kind of bring numbers into the trains I can bring shapes into the train area um but what I also need to do is actually see if I kind of nurture and coach your early pretend skills or if I sit alongside you and, you know, we make marks and then I kind of model um, um, drawing a face and things like that, that, that actually that's not just about making you use more areas of my learning environment. It's about actually building your skills and building your language skills so so i do think play is a play and language oh i mean if we start on that that's a separate <laughs> podcast Stephen. <laughs> um i i think it's really important that, that people understand what they're seeing and and why they're seeing what they're seeing and the role that language plays in that as you're talking kirsty and, and i'm thinking it dovetails very much with the next thing that we wanted to touch on with you because you're talking we, we, we began that bit of the conversation around um, the importance of practitioners having an understanding of language and communication development. Um, and I, and, and as, you're, as I'm listening to you, I, I'm thinking about how much you're talking about the way that that knowledge of that development dovetails with knowing the child, the, the whole child. So, so you've got that kind of diagnostic capability with the language and communication development, and then you've got your knowledge of the child as an individual and how as a, as a practitioner you, you, you bring those together to support the child. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, you know, we talk a lot, and particularly at the minute we're talking a lot um, about the need for CPD, for, for, for language development and communication development. And, and I think there's also a lot that needs um, to be understood about the incremental steps of pre-literacy development, that, that it's a very specific process that children need to go through. And, and I think that need has always been there, but I think with the changes that are going on in the UFS, that, that need is becoming more kind of pronounced or, 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 or spoken about by kind of people kind of in the upper echelons of power. Um, but I also think that need's always been there. But what people also need to do is then be able to transfer that into their practice. And I think um, it's that ability to understand that process. And when I'm working with different children, kind of also knowing that child and knowing where they are on that process and, and what that child's next steps and my priority skills for that child um, will be. Um, and then bringing that into my practice. And, and when I bring that into my practice, I just mean bring that into every element of my practice so I think the most fundamental thing to think about is my interactions with different children 
And I think it knowing that child and where they are should inform everything about how I interact and and it can even be in if a child's I don't know for want of a better example in the water tray and I'm going over to kind of spend some time and to, to nurture their skills and their language um where do I position myself and and so for some children it would be absolutely fine if I just kind of plopped in and and kind of got down on their level but I was next to them but for other children as long as there was space, obviously, and I wouldn't want to push another child out of the way. But for some children, it would be much more appropriate for me to go to the opposite side of the water tray so that we can be face-to-face, so that the child is able to be encouraged to, to tune into my face and my voice um, and, and, and have that kind of visual support um, as well as looking at the resources that they're using and that we're sharing. And, and so I think even kind of that kind of fun fundamental understanding and I think when we're working when we're looking at early years practitioners who work with much younger children then it would be normal usual good practice that we would have those face-to-face interactions that we would have that exaggerated facial expression that we would use more simple language that we would leave lots of pauses and gaps to wait to see what the child did before we responded and I think Uh, There's a lot of skill there with practitioners, but what we need to remember, and I suppose what understanding language development, is how do I bring some of those strategies back out of my toolkit, uh, back out of the bag, um, when I've got an older child but who still needs those strategies and, and those things as well as how I position myself. Like I've said, it's about how I use my gestures it's about what do I say you know how much do I say what language skills do I model so that um you know the old joke in um primary schools isn't it is that when the leadership come down if they don't understand early years they walk in to child initiated and they think oh all they're doing is playing um even though play is obviously massively important but actually the more i understand about language development that me kind of sitting um, crouching opposite or, or or being alongside a child depending on who that child is as we um share that kind of experience of um um, exploring and using those resources in the water trade the more I understand about it I've actually got a really clear idea about what I'm doing and, and what skills that I'm building and that can be in the learning environment or it could be kind of in our daily routine so as we're getting our coats on to go outside or as we're having some fruit for our snack that every time I interact with a child the more I understand about language development I add value to it and I add purpose to it because I've got a much clearer idea about what I'm doing and and, and why that's so so important Um, I also um, think that the more you understand about language development the more you begin to look at your learning environment differently as well whether it be inside or outside because to me your learning environment is about creating opportunities so if I've got all of my children because they're young or if I've got a subgroup of children who really really struggle with the skill of taking turns it's like well what have I got in my learning environment that would be really good to lend itself well for like my turn your turn or very very small group kind of turn taking activities if we're really wanting to build auditory discrimination right well what have I got in my learning environment that when you explore it or when you use it it makes a noise so that as well as looking and touching 
thinking and talking about the environment, we can do lots of, oh, listen to that. And we can do lots of talk about auditory stimulation, not just in a, a group activity where I've planned a phase one activity and I'm doing a sound walk, um, but in the give and take of everything. So that I begin to see my learning environment as um, creating lots of different opportunities. I, I know one nursery school who changed their mud kitchen into a pebble kitchen um, because when you put the pebbles in the metal pans, the auditory st uh, stimulation, the opportunities for counting, the opportunities for talking about more and less. Um, so, so, so again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with mud kitchens at all. I think they're fabulous. But that lead in, in, in that nursery school decided to adapt hers because she was aware of the skills that she wanted to create. And just by tweaking it slightly, she was able to create additional opportunities. Um, I think when you do kind of have more planned um, activities, um, understanding language development should inform those as well. So if I'm sharing stories, well, what stories? And, and you know, it shouldn't just be the ones that I like and the, the ones that are my favourites. It should be, what are the skills um, that I want my children to learn? What is the language load um, that, that, that possibly my children are ready to, to process? How much visual support should I give when I'm sharing this story? Actually, should I give this story again and again and again because my children need that repetition? Should I pre-teach vocabulary? Should I? There's all sorts of kind of considerations so that story time is not simplistic it, it's actually part of my teaching mechanism and the more that I understand where my children are the more that I can use that in a really purposeful way same with same with songs and rhymes um, um, for example um, and, and my focus activities the more I understand about what my children are what their next steps would be then I can plan to that so rather than necessarily just grabbing an activity from phase one or grabbing a random activity from some kind of language handbook I'm not saying those activities can't be used but I use those activities or I think of my own because I know what I'm trying to achieve with those children at this given moment in time and I think just to finish it off I think under underpinning all of this is that you know, practitioners are, you know, they really play a primary role in, in language development, uh, in, in particularly our younger children, in that probably the only other people who have a greater influence on this process are our parents, obviously. Um, but if we in the world of education are kind of saying that language development is so important, it, it forms the basis of other areas of the curriculum. Um, you know, a lot in schools now is about this kind of knowledge-based curriculum. Um, and it's like, well, I cannot move to a knowledge-based curriculum until my children can listen and understand, understand the words that I use, um, link those new words that I might be teaching them to old words that they already know, and then be able to tell me about what we've just talked about straight away and the day after and the week after as well. And, and, and so I think it's about understanding the value of language. But on top of that, it's about understanding 
the primary role that an early years practitioner plays in that process. And aside from parents, that there, there are no greater people uh, for putting those skills in place with young children. It's, they play such a fundamental role. It cannot be um, overstated. You briefly mentioned the changes in the early years that um, are going on at the minute, uh, including the New Development Matters uh, in this September, uh, and generally a sort of move away from a data-centric approach, which a lot of us actually are really keen on. Um, How does Launchpad for Literacy fit with and support these changes, I suppose? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Completely, I am in agreement with moving away from copious amounts of data collection for data's sake. So, you know, if I work for a multi-academy trust and we've got a data drop every half term or whenever it may be, that I spend huge amounts of my time doing these observations, tracking it all in um, and kind of really kind of putting a lot of staff time and effort into it to kind of meet the demands of the data drop. But when I say to people, well, what impact does that have on your practice? Hmm, possibly not as much as it, it should do. Um, and so for I feel assessment should only be really useful if it actually informs you and informs your practice. Um, and I also think um, we did get to a point where when I would talk to an early years lead, for example, and, and they would be talking about a child where they might have concerns either about speech and language or early literacy development. And I would say, for example, well, what's Joshua like? And I would get maybe the answer of, oh, well, he's 30 to 50 emerging. And I would say, no, 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 no. What's he like? What does he like to do? play with where does he go what does he do how does he communicate how does he make his needs known how does he respond to these activities and and i think although we felt that we had a grip of where our children were when you actually had discussions not with everybody but with some people um that data kind of muddied the water and muddied the specific and that personal detail about that child. So, so I, I do agree with that. And, and the other thing that I agree with is just the amount of time it took. And, and when we're talking about language development, the way I build language is by interacting with children um, and that I cannot build language by standing on the sidelines and observing all the time that I need to do some of that of course I need to do but that if I'm spending too much time doing that who's adding the language who's modeling those language structures who's modeling um, that those grammatical structures I think that's really really important however saying we need to move away from that there is completely a need to know language development and to know our children's starting points. Personally, I think that we need to know that for all of our children. So even our children who um, are walking through our door, where our initial sweep and those developmental checkpoints that are in the new development matters suggest that these children are online on, on track, um, and in line with kind of where they should be for me I still need to kind of know that starting point but more to the point of right well what's going to come next so that um, even if they're on track at the age of three for example 
there's still so many language skills that they need to learn. Um, you know, vocabulary concepts, the ability to retell, the ability to, to use language to create and, and begin to tell my own stories. And so there's a lot of language. There's a, certainly a lot of pragmatic skills, that ability to function in groups, that ability to consider other children's needs and to talk about how I feel. Um, but also the, the other important thing is kind of understanding, well, great, we've got a good rock up, good bedrock um, speech and language development there but what are the steps that I need to take from that starting point to begin that ability to at some point in the future transition from spoken language to written language and that's about not just a random hodgepodge of um, phonological awareness activities that's understanding about the incremental process of auditory discrimination the incremental process of developing auditory memory and then when I do want to develop phonological awareness how that actually incrementally can be can be built Um, and and for me um, Launchpad gives you that structure of where do you get children who have those strongish starting points to kind of that 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 ability to kind of be prepared and ready for that next wave of demand that learning and education will place on them however establishing starting points is most fundamentally important and um when it comes to identifying children who are flagged up um, with the changes as being not on track significantly um, below um, or just below uh, age-related expectations. Um, And I just think from a practitioner point of view, that needs flagging up. But then I need to move to the point of like, okay, right, well, where exactly are they? Um, What can these children do? Where's my starting point and where do I need to move these children next? Because a child who might be flagged up as significantly below compared to another child who's flagged up as significantly below can be complete well they will be completely different because all children are completely different but the developmental reasons why they're significantly below can be completely different so i think it's particularly important and and we're able to kind of say right okay like launchpad for literacy will give you that structure of developments and it will give you that ability to say right well you should be here and development methods is saying that you're not here so let me understand the um, skills that feed into you being here um, and track back on those skills and and kind of say right well how far back do I go before I can get a yes (laughs) how far back do I can go before I say yes you can do this and we go back to that first question or those first couple of questions at the beginning because it will be that mismatch between stage and age that will be kind of say hang on a minute is this kind of just a little bit of immaturity is this something that we can begin to work on and deal with in-house um, or is this a massive mismatch in, in case of I still of course even if I um, click in those referrals to outside agencies it's still something that I need to understand well whilst I'm waiting for those people to, to see this child I as a practitioner and as a leader need to understand where that child is and what that next steps are. So so it's fundamental to my curriculum um, for all children, but I think it's particularly fundamental for driving the curriculum um, for those children where there are developmental gaps. It's fundamental for um, working out who I need to refer, who I need to be concerned about, but even where I refer, what do I need um, uh, to do with these children? Who do I possibly 
not need to refer, but I might have referred in the past because actually I feel more confident with knowing uh, where children are. So, so, so that establishing of starting points is crucial for that identification process and for driving the curriculum. And I think woven into that kind of identification of children with um, specific needs, it's not just about establishing starting points. It's about then saying with that targeted approach, how do children progress? And there will be some children who don't progress as much as other children or some children who walk through my door who initially appeared to be okay. But as time rolls on, I begin to be concerned about them because they possibly had hidden developmental gaps that I hadn't realized on that initial sweep. So it's not just about establishing starting points. It's about having a framework that will also kind of allow you, but in a really purposeful, practical way to say, right, well, how are you doing with that now? Um, because when I spot a child who isn't making progress as much as expected, um, it's a case of, hang on a minute, maybe at this point now we do need to click in those referrals. We do need to up our level of concern because other children who came in in a similar position around them are moving on much further than this child. Maybe there's a little bit more to it. Or if I've got a child who I thought would be okay, but then doesn't kind of make progress with something, it allows me to stop the bus and say, right, okay, why might that be? Um, what are the developmental barriers that are possibly stopping you from getting that? Um, so I do agree with the changes, but what I worry about is that the words assessment and tracking will become dirty words for want of a better phrase in the early years. And I think that is wrong. Um, I think what we need is we need really purposeful assessment to establish starting points and next steps. And we need really purposeful, developmentally appropriate kind of monitoring how, how children move on from those starting points. I think that's always been the case. And I think it will continue to be um, the case. We just might need to move towards doing it in detail with smaller numbers of children um, and doing it with very developmentally specific um, things um, which I believe Launchpad offers rather than the very broad statements that the old development matters um, um, offered. So following on from that Kirsty, how can we make language interventions really meaningful for those children who perhaps are experiencing a level of delay? Well I think I'll start kind of answering that question with thinking about what people know already uh, as language interventions and I think a lot of people will be familiar with things like I can early talk boost uh, for those people working in reception you know they'll be uh, very aware of the, the the Nelly the Nuffield early language intervention kind of approach that's kind of been advocated by the DFE and I think I'll start by just saying programs such as that can have a value but I think what we really need to understand as practitioners and leaders is what they work on and and how they work on it so that it is no there's no point really in kind of me taking a group of children and then delivering pre pre should I say pre-planned sessions if I don't myself understand what those sessions are working on and what I'm trying to achieve uh, through those sessions um, and I really need to kind of say if I use those intervention programs alongside Launchpad what Launchpad will do is it will help me realize that those programs are not the be-all and end-all 
they are one part of my toolbox um, that will allow me to facilitate certain skill sets with certain children at a certain moment in time. Um, but I have to think, well, what happens outside of those intervention sessions? Um, what happens to those children who don't fit into that intervention program model? Those children whose difficulties are much more significant than what those sessions are planned to target. What do I do with those children? How do I generalize the, the, the progress? So even if I do implement a program, Launchpad can help me understand the what and the why, and it can also help me think about how do I extend that? How do I generalize that? What do I do when that program has finished? Um, but also, most importantly, what do I do with the children who don't fit neatly into that pre-planned, isolated program? Um, personally, um, I think if you understand language development and you have that real strong pedagogical approach to kind of language development, I personally don't think that we need isolated programs. That's my personal opinion. Um, I think that what we really need to do is um, flip the notion of intervention. Intervention in education is understood as something separate, something time limited, and something that's a little bit separate from everything else that I do. Certainly with the schools and the settings that I work with, we talk a lot about this notion of embedding intervention. And that goes back to um, that intervention is not rocket science. Intervention for me is targeted practice. It's targeted teaching. It's targeted interactions. Um, and the more I, it goes back to just everything we've talked about, really, the more I understand that I can embed um, interventions into my interactions i can embed interventions into my learning environment i can embed interventions into my my own planning that i think sometimes the word intervention can get in the way because we think it's something that we need to do to the children when actually what we need to, to deliver is just really targeted good practice that can come from that real understanding of children but that interplay of that understanding um the interplay between understanding and CPD and actually practice and delivery of that understanding. Um, and I think, you know, just to finish this question off, I think, you know, I used to be a Hannon accredited therapist and um, the Hannon organization, a Canadian organization is fabulous um, for thinking about interactions and embedding interventions into um, early years practice. Uh, there was a phrase and I'm probably misquoting it because it was so long ago when I trained, um, but they talked about how the vast majority of language will be learnt in the give and take of daily interactions and daily conversations. And I think, you know, we cannot teach language in an isolated ring-fenced way. It needs to be embedded into those interactions, embedded into those conversations. And if I do want to kind of say, right, I've got six target children, let me plan some kind of small group focus activities to be part of my toolbox for intervention that's fine but for me plan them from what you know those children need at this moment in time and also ideally use resources 
from your learning environments so that um, you're building vocabulary. Link those activities to stories that you're sharing or things that you're learning about outside of that group um, because language is not learned in isolation. The more the vocabulary and the resources that I use within that group or the pictures that I use link into the stories or the other things that we're doing um, or exploring in our learning environment, the more likely I am to see general generalization. That's making me think that will lead really well into our final question, Kirsty, which is about how educators work with families to support children's language development. And I'm thinking, as you're saying, about those daily interactions is the way that children learn, learn their, their language and their vocabulary and they embed. I, I'm assuming that, that involving families is really important. Oh, completely. And I think often what we find is that people feel uncertain, not all people, but some people feel uncertain about this. And the more that practitioners and leaders understand about language development and the more that they can reflect on their own targeted practice, the more it adds to that bank of confidence when kind of working with parents. And I think certainly in schools, what we do when we work with parents is we often kind of feel we need to give them activities, that we need to give them tasks in the same way as I might lead a phonics workshop, for example. Um, And... I think we need to understand the value of talking about talking and talking about interaction and and, and kind of those basic principles that we use and, and, and that maybe um, practitioners um, could use, um, practitioners, sorry, sorry, parents could use at home as well, getting all mixed up with all these Ps. Um, but I also think it's about, you know, just everyday strategies. So, you know, when you're... Um, playing this game or or when you're having your five minutes of special talking time you know it's really useful if for that moment in time we turn the television off I think when we go with that isolated just do this activity approach I think we forget that kind of everyday um strategies that can make a big difference to to children such as you know turning the the television off when it's time to talk or um you know um make sure that when you talk you're you're being simple or you're adding verb vocabulary all of those strategies are really useful to share to parents i think where launchpad and working with parents becomes even more useful is when we think about working with parents of those children who have needs so um those children who um if we did a workshop for all of our parents, their children's needs wouldn't be met within that workshop because I'm kind of giving strategies and ideas um, for the parents of the vast majority of children within my cohort. So I think when it comes to that kind of one-to-one work with parents, um, Launchpad can become really valuable. And my ethos always is about... um, kind of using that mindset that I have about children through Launchpad in my practice to my work with parents. So always beginning kind of the process of talking about what a child needs by beginning with discussing what the child can do and celebrating their successes and then talking about, right, well, the next steps we're working on here are turn-taking, for example, or um, understanding simple instructions. Um, Let's think about how you could work on those at home. But that discussion begins with, oh, I've noticed that he's really good at doing this, but what we need to do next is this. And I think it's really important that um, 
with parents of children who have got needs, we always begin with that success. And when I see them the next time that we begin by talking about the progress that they've made, I think otherwise interactions with um, practitioners and particularly once that child moves into school can become very negative unless we have that kind of very success driven uh, approach. And, and we have to have empathy with these parents. These parents probably are concerned as well. They may articulate that. They may not articulate that. But the bottom line is they really love that child um, and, and, and that child is everything to them and, and our work with them has to kind of celebrate uh, what the child can do and I also think you know Launchpad looks at skill steps it doesn't define activities it doesn't say you must work on this with this set of pictures and do exactly this with these resources or with these pictures it's more about this is what the child needs to to to, to be to, to do next this is what you need to facilitate next so when it comes to working with parents it's not that you have to give them lots of ring fenced activities you can say right okay well we're working on turn taking let's think about how you could do that at home we're working on it in our you know you might not say this but you know we're working on it in our daily routines let's look at your daily routines how could you work on it at bath time maybe how could you work on it when you're on your way home from school how could you um, so that we don't just say, here's an activity, that we actually say, here's a skill. Let's think about your daily routines, um, because lots of parents are, are very time poor. Let's build it in. Let's weave it into what's going on in your day anyway. And then if we are going to think about some activities, let's either let's try where possible to think about what have you got and then what could we use for this? Or what do I know you've got? And that, so, so that I'm not kind of giving them ideas um, to use with toys that that family simply don't have. I, I think it's um, really important, but I think the, the bedrock of it is about incremental but achievable next steps, celebrating success, and then trying to build that into that family's life rather than necessarily just reduplicating um, what I'm doing in my setting or reduplicating what an intervention program says that I should do. Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you so much. It's so interesting hearing about the way that Launchpad can really assist practitioners to have that subject knowledge and that confidence. I suppose it goes back to that diagnostic capability a bit themselves so that they can then support children and, and the other thing that really strikes me is that real positive thing about finding the place where they can do the thing can do something and that's where you start from it's it's a it's a really yeah it's just a really positive approach to to that subject knowledge for the practitioner i think so thank you so much for sharing your incredible knowledge about, about language and communication development with children. It's been wonderful to listen to as well. So thank you. No, thank you for asking me. It's been really interesting as well to, to think about these things and to discuss them with you.